There's a reason it's Tom, Joe, Jack and Harry. That's true, actually. Yeah. But no, you are your own person and you get your own episode, Harry. Fantastic. So for, for the audience who've, who've come to know Jack over the course of the last year, we have another little brother called Harry. And he's, amongst other things, a trainee nurse and an avid climber of things. Yeah. That fair to say? Well, not things, more of rocks. Avid climber of rocks. If I saw a ladder, I wouldn't be like, "Ooh, that looks like a good, good climb." But you know, drove past a rock. I love I the think. idea. There's someone working on a roof somewhere, and you're just right up behind him, like, "Hi, that was fun." Do you need a spot? <laughs> but yeah, so I came across a story that, considering your, you know, passion for climbing, I mm. thought you might like. Yeah. And I wrote it just for I've you. I'm very excited to hear it. I know. Although I didn't do any research that I said I would, hoping I'd be able to... You're not meant to do but, research. Yeah. That's fine. Okay. There's nothing annoys me more than when I try to give someone a fact and they go, huh, I know this. I'm like... <laughs> okay. I hate I hate them a little. Uh... Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history. Focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... So, okay, your story takes place mainly in 1865, which is the Victorian era. And the three words to give you a flavour of what we're going to talk about... Oh yeah. Engraving, rope, okay, frogs. And they're they're linked. Very tangentially, yes. Very vaguely. Yes. Right. But the... Okay. It's not a lot to go off, really. It never has been. If you got it from that, I'd be very impressed. Is this where you're going to ask... Are you going to ask me later on? What was one of the words, Harry? Oh, no, no, no. Gonna... Generally speaking, they never get mentioned again. All right. It's, it's been a really bad addition to the podcast, but I'm sticking with it. Okay. Because I'm stubborn. All right. So, Josiah Wood Wimper <laughs> was a Victorian male. Wood was not only his middle name, it was also his profession as he had turned down an apprenticeship as a stonemason. After all, his middle name wasn't Stone. No. Uh, and he'd become an in-demand wood engraver, producing printing blocks for illustrations. So one of the ways you could mass-produce images back in the day was you'd carve it into a wooden block, dip that in ink. And that's it. Just keep going. You'd do a series. If you wanted, you know, sort of like multiple colours, ding, ding, ding. Like you used to do when you were a kid with potatoes. Yeah, or the, um, the picture of the Great Wave... Um, and Mount Fuji, you know the the Japanese wave by Hakusai. Mm. That was wood carving. All right, that was wood block carving. Show me after. I will. Okay. Yeah. He also lived up to his middle name by fathering eleven children, including wood in... by name, wood by nature. I hope he didn't say that to his wife, <laughs> especially not when she was giving birth to the eleventh child. Oh God. Got wood. I've got, <laughs> I've got lots of wood. I've got an entire forest. Um, including, in 1814, a son called Edward Wimper. When Edward was six, his father completed a commission of 30 engravings of dramatic natural phenomena, including volcanoes, whirlpools... I'm going to say it like that. I don't care. Okay. High mountain passes and avalanches. 
and it's likely that young Edward saw these images and imagined himself spanning the snow bridges or delving deep into the caverns that his father was drawing. Whatever the reason, though, Edward decided he wanted to be an adventurer and live a life of adventure. Doesn't every kid want to be that? I know, but he really, he really. How old is he at this point Uh, when he decides? So he's six. He's six, and he decides it. Yeah, that's a. Yeah. yeah, and in the 1840s, he had many explorers to take as inspiration. The Franklin expedition to find the Northwest Passage was underway. Livingston had made it to Africa and was starting to think about exploring the vast swathes of unknown territory. And people were finally starting to explore the interior of Australia, wrongly assuming that the desert couldn't go on forever. <laughs> Their eventual realisation and anger uh, led to place names such as Mount Despair, Mount Buggery, which is only a seven-hour drive from Spanker's Knob, <laughs> which is understandably over ten hours from Booty Booty. Uh, there were also Lost Hope and, of course, the lovely town, hey Keith, of Desolation. Did you, did you make up a few of them? None they... of those. They are all honest-to-goodness place <laughs> names in the interior of Australia. Because <laughs> you can not? imagine, you've been travelling for five days and... There's a reason that the biggest desert in Australia is just called the Great Sandy Desert, because people were just so hacked off by Mm. the end of it. Closer to home, though, in Europe, the 82 peaks of the Alps, that are over 4,000 metres, were slowly being ticked off by intrepid mountaineers from practically every corner of the continent except the UK. By the time Edward was looking at his dad's wood carvings, four of the top ten had already been conquered, including the biggest peak of all, Mont Blanc. Mm. But thoughts of exploration and adventure would have to wait. Because Edward Wimper would spend the first 20 years of his life apprenticing as a wood engraver to his father. Is that just the way of the world then? You you have to do what your dad did. Well, it's... To a point, I guess. Yeah, I mean, at that point, your your options were to either have your dad teach you his trade and take over the family business. Or if you wanted to apprentice in another trade, you'd be an indentured servant which means you wouldn't be making any money. Uh, and if your master turned out to be a bit of an arsehole, you still had to stay for the term of your indenture. So if you signed over seven years to learn to, say, make, you know, be a cooper and make barrels, hmm. and it turned out after, after week one, you, you couldn't stand your boss. Was that it? You screwed then? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're there for... Otherwise because, you get killed. Well, no, <laughs> if you try to break the terms of your contract, that's a legal thing, you'll be prosecuted. Yeah, but I mean, but back then, was it... Yeah, it was... You're going to get killed or... No, no, you'd just be uh, imprisoned for breaking the terms of your contract. And then you you come out after the same amount of time without a trade. Mm. So you're pretty much screwed either way. And then have to finish the rest of the contract. (laughs) Oh, no, it wasn't that bad. (laughs) Yeah. You spent seven years in prison now. Back to him. (laughs) He's got meaner since you left. (laughs) No. Don't make me. Um, Yeah. So it was... Uh, you know, and it was a well-paying trade. If you were a good wood engraver at the time, you mm. you were making good money. Right. So it was a worthwhile Honestly, thing. Yeah. Eleven mark. Eleven, did you say? First twenty years of his life. So until the age no, of twenty. No, I mean, his dad was had eleven kids. His dad had eleven. So he was kids, one yeah. of eleven. Yeah. Like, you have to be rich to have eleven kids, surely. Well, it depends what you feed. You've got them. two. <laughs> How are you going? Yeah, but we we we're forced by law to buy things like car seats and to keep them safe. Yeah, Back true. in the day, yeah, that's true. If anything, having eleven kids was having eleven more free labourers that you could set to work or 
that you could rent out to other people to use as labor. Mm. But by the time those 20 years, first 20 years of his life had gone by, the golden age of alpinism was well underway and the formation of the Alpine Club in 1857 ensured that the Brits were finally in the running for the remaining unconquered peaks starting with the very Englishly named John Ball who climbed the Mont Palomo in the Dolomites in 1857 the Eiger, the Dom the Alashorn and the Bitchelhorn and the Rimfelshorn had all been conquered by Brits before 1860 yeah, so they're all horns. Three of the horns have been... Uh, <laughs> how, how much have you had to practice pr- pronouncing these? I think it's quite clear I haven't <laughs> practiced them at all. Oh, well, you did pretty well. Well, you can't read them, so you've got nothing to reference against. That's true. Uh, 1860, though, a couple of years after these first peaks have been conquered by the Brits, was an important year for Edward Wimper. Because he'd finally completed his apprenticeship, for one, and he managed to take advantage of the new British obsession with climbing foreign mountains to land his first gig, which was creating illustrations in the Alps, oh. including being the chief illustrator for the 1860 British expedition to conquer Mount Pelvaux, which was just shy of 4,000 metres and had already been climbed in 1828, but that had only been by the locals, so it didn't count. Because well, when you've got an unfair advantage, yeah. Wh- whenever it? you're conquering something, you can pretty much ignore the locals because you know they do, they're not trying to conquer it. They're just you know they're just but, there. But it's not a first ever, is it? Really? Uh, well, it didn't really matter because the expedition failed. Oh, right, uh, okay. But Edward decided that he could get the fawns together to launch his own expedition to climb the highest mountain in the area, as long as he promised to return with a more accurate topographical map of the region. So. He wanted to do some climbing of his own and he managed to finance it by saying, while I'm there, I'll draw everything that's around. So other people wanting to climb this will have a much better idea of where's safe, where's not. Uh, So it boiled down to, I'll stand on top of the highest bit and I'll draw everything I can see from there. All you have to do is finance me getting to the top of that highest bit and we're golden. (laughs) And he found backers. Uh, and in 1861, the very next year, he was indeed successfully able to climb Mount Pelvaux and was immediately disappointed to find it wasn't actually the highest mountain in the area. <laughs> that was the Bar de Ecrin that was less than five kilometres or three oh. miles uh, to the northeast. How did he not see it? Well, he did. <laughs> That's the problem. He climbed to the top of this just thing. Thought- and then oh, it's as just he was, a slight bit. Yeah, he was expecting to look around and see everything below him. And then as he turned to the northeast, he saw something above him and went, Oh, God damn it. Shit. But, excitingly for him, it measured at just over 4,000 metres and it was still unclimbed. What he just climbed or the one that the, he the, was The Bardia Crin. Right. The one that he's looking at. He's like, that is a 4,000 metre peak. So that's one of these famous yeah, 82. The, the big ones. And it's also... Unclimbed, so that's something apart I could locals, go for. A lot uh, that apart are from the, the locals, probably on the top. <laughs> Wave <Hello. now. laughs> it's unconquered. Hi, <laughs> completely unconquered. Um, exhilarated by his first nearly 4,000 meter peak, though, Edward made the mental note regarding the Bardia Crin and then asked the local guides what was the highest peak in the Alps that was still up for grabs. The answer the Matterhorn. Oh. Mm. The Matterhorn, yeah, it's pretty much the perfect mountain, as it's basically a pyramid 
with the four faces almost perfectly aligning with the points on the compass. So there is a north, south, mm. east and west face that are literally facing those directions. <clears throat> uh, it dominates the landscape around it because it's over a thousand metres taller than any neighbouring peaks within 10 kilometres of it. And the summit is as pointy as it gets. It is When I say it's a pyramid... The pointier, the better. Oh, it is such a pointy pyramid. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> he made his first attempt on the mountain in 1861 from the southern Italian side. Wisely deciding not to employ an Italian guide called jean Antoine Carrel because he didn't like the look of his uncle. <laughs> so he's, a, he's a good local guide. Um, How was that part of the picking the guide process? That's what Wimper's... Um, <laughs> That's what he's, uh, you know, his... And last question. Can you just show me a picture of your uncle? <laughs> no. I think I think his uncle was near him. I believe um, Carell climbed with his uncle. Oh, and Wimper was like, along. I like you, but he's creepy. Can right, we drop okay. the uncle? And Jean, uh, Jean-Antoine was like, no, I, I climbed with my uncle. He's like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll give you a miss. I'll pass on that one. Uh, this conveniently ignored the fact that Carell had been trying to conquer the Matterhorn since 1857. So... The, the very experienced climber who got closer than anyone else had. He was like, no, I don't want you on my team. I'll go somewhere else, thank you very much. Okay. Supr- unsurprisingly, Wimper failed. And to add insult to injury, he was overtaken by Carell, who managed to make it over 4,000 metres and within 500 metres of the summit before he too was forced back. So he missed his shot with the experienced guy. I'm well, getting confused with all the names. There's a lot of names and things I'm not... Well, the only two that you need to worry about so far is it's Wimper and Carell. Wimper and Carell. So Wimper's our English hero, yeah. and Carell is the Italian right, okay. um, you know, climber with a lot of experience who's dedicated way more of his life than one year to climbing. But because he's not English, you know, Wimper saw him as kind of a villain because he right. didn't like the look of his uncle. <laughs> but what neither Wimper nor Carell knew was that even though the southern side looks the easiest route, it's actually pretty damn difficult. The two men would try again over a dozen times between them over the next four years, sometimes in the same party, but mainly in opposing expeditions, and neither would make the summit. Okay. Though Carell got the closest at 4,248 metres, which was less than 250 metres from uh, the summit. Uh. So you'd just be gutted, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, it's you, you. I mean, fair play to him to actually acknowledge the fact that it was too dangerous. Because if I got that close to something by hook or yeah, by crook, I, I'd die true, yeah. trying to finish but, it. Fuck it. <laughs> the last combined effort that the two did took place in 1863, when storms forced them to spend 26 straight hours alone together in a tent. <laughs> we don't know what happened in there, but they never made eye contact again. <laughs> Because if you're not sure about someone or you've been <clears throat> a rival with someone intensely for the past three years and then you end up... Just stuck in a tent Just in all you can hear is the... <laughs> That's good storm noise there. <laughs> and you just... It's not letting up. No. Where's your uncle? <laughs> uh, tent-based awakenings aside, during this time, Edward had been growing in experience because he wasn't just trying to climb the Matterhorn over and over. Going back, Um, training a bit. He had managed to go back and tick off the first ascent of the Bardia Crins in 1864, as well as the first ascent of other nearly 4,000-metre mountains, the Aguil de Argentinaire and Mount Dolent. 
Wimper also designed an A-frame tent because you have to be able to merchandise if you want to be a success. And it was literally called the Wimper Mountaineering Tent. Yeah. So he made he, that? Yeah, he designed he the A-frame really? tent. Oh, wow. Mm. Didn't know that. Not that I would have anyway, yeah. but... It's the yeah. one that the um, the um, scouts used. Uh, yeah. The What's it? The, the American scouts. What do they call those? Are they just the scouts. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Um, we aren't we beavers? Oh no! But then the scouts. There's the scouts of America. And the... I don't know. We didn't do scouts. But Did anyway, you do he, scouts. No, he managed to franchise it out to sort of like national scouting organizations. So he made quite a bit of money off the A-frame tent uh, with renewed confidence. You know, his tents all over the world. Hmm. Um, he returned to the Matterhorn in 1865. How old is he at this point? Uh, he's still only in his twenties. He'd actually avoided the Matterhorn for two years ever since the tent incident, which we will never speak of again. But after two years, the memory had faded enough that he felt he could go back to it. He reasoned that if the Southwest Ridge, known as the Lion Ridge, which he had been previously attempting, looked like it had steps, but actually had overhangs, then maybe the Northeast Ridge, which looked like it had overhangs, actually had steps. And that it was a trick of the light that kept telling people that they should be using one rather than the other. Uh, to be fair, earlier in 1865, he had tried the southeast ridge and had gotten halfway when a massive rock fall convinced his guides to give up on him. So he'd been all for carrying on, but the mm. guides just went, no. no don't fancy that. Uh, Wimper had yeah. reluctantly followed them down uh, and realised that he now really only had a toss-up between two untried ridges because there were only four. Right. So when I say he had this revelation it was basically he flipped a coin and went I'm going to go for that one northeast that's the one I'm going for that'll be fine his slight rockfall setback may have provided inspiration for the new route but it also meant that when he had his revelation he was without equipment or guides even worse he heard that Carell who had refused his request to team up uh, was planning to lead a new attempt backed by the Italian Alpine Society Mm. And they were gearing up for another crack at the Lion Ridge, determined that only an Italian could claim the last great Alpine peak. This was July 11th. Okay? So they just shunned him. Yeah. Luckily, though, for Edward Wimper, he happened to randomly stumble across a 19-year-old British aristocrat called Lord Francis Douglas <laughs> at the Monte Rosa Hotel where he was staying. Edward explained his logic vis-a-vis -vis the Northeast Ridge, and Lord Douglas said he had two guides called Peter Tagwalder. Um, and when I say two guides called Peter Tagwalder, they were senior and junior, oh, right. father and son. Like, so there were there were two Peter Tagwalders there. And one's called Tagwalder. Right. So why not <clears throat> take one each, and they'd form a British climbing alliance to take on the Italians? That is for a typical. Well, uh, no, you normally of... have more. Right. Uh, but that didn't matter because even better, the very next morning, they bumped into two other Englishmen looking to climb the Matterhorn. Experienced climber Charles Hudson and very inexperienced climber Douglas Haddow, uh, who had hired legendary French guide Michael Cross for their attempt. So they were going to try and go as a threesome. Right, so they're now the seven of them. Yeah, because Edward and Michael knew each other well, uh, as Michael had been the mastermind behind Wimper's ascents of the other mountains he'd climbed. So he knew their guide really well, Michael Cross, and he went, well, we've got two Tagwalders, we can add a Cross into it, and then we'll have, you know, four British uh, upper-class Aristos climbing as well. 
as the seven of us are going to be great. We're, we're a fantastic climbing mega force. Right. Yeah. So after only another day of planning this trip on July 13th, the newly formed band of seven set out for the Northeast Ridge. Knowing the Italians were massing on the southern side and that this was the, probably the last chance for the Matterhorn to be claimed by the British. They started up the northeast ridge and were delighted to find the going was so easy they could pretty much run about. They camped at just over a <laughs> thousand feet and woke on July the 14th, Bastille Day, to find that the ridge they had to climb was, in Wimper's own words, rising for 3,000 feet like a huge natural staircase. Some parts were more and others were less easy, but we were not once brought to a halt by any serious impediment. For when an obstruction was met in front, it could always be turned to the right or to the left. For the greater part of the way, there was indeed no occasion for the rope. And sometimes, Hudson led, sometimes myself. At 6.20, we had attained a height of 12,800 feet and halted for half an hour. We then continued the ascent without a break until 9.55, when we stopped for 50 minutes at a height of 14,000 feet. Yeah. Yeah. The final... made a bit... Considering that it's just stairs and is. It's still a big mountain. <laughs> yeah, I know, but how long were they going for for that day? And they only did 200 feet? No, no, no. They've got all the way up. Oh, right. Sorry. I've missed. They did 1,000 feet on the first day. Oh, right. And then they've done the next 3,000 feet in a morning. Oh. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> because, that's amazing. Yeah, that's how easy it was for them. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. The final 200 meters to the summit was so easy that you could run it. <laughs> And inevitably, this turns into a race. And as a foreshadowing of so many editions of the Tour de France, the Frenchman Crow was unable to reach the summit first on Bastille Day, being forced to share the honour of conquering the Matterhorn with Edward Wimper at exactly 1.40pm. The two men anxiously scanned the snow for any sign of Italian boots and, finding no prints, they had a quick look over the southern side to see Carell and his party struggling less oh. than 400 metres below them. <laughs> Surely, if these Italians have lived there the whole mm. life, why did they not think, we'll, we'll try the other side? Because Just the southern side try. was the Italian side. Ah, right, you so know, that was better, all right. They okay. were coming from Italy to climb yeah. what they held as an Italian mountain. Just being stubborn, that, though, yeah. isn't it? But, so they look down, they see Carell and his, his, his team there. So they threw some rocks at them to gain their attention <laughs> of the Italians. And Carell, looking up and seeing Edward Wimper waving at him and giving him a cheeky wink, was so pissed off, he immediately turned back and would not complete his ascent from the Italian side for another three days. So what, where did he turn back to, just to go to the bottom? Back down to their base camp, yeah. He's just like, so angry, <laughs> just like, screw Stewing. this. Yeah, so he turned and he went back down. After that night in the tent... <laughs> The British party stayed on the summit for an hour and they built a cairn, you know, to yeah. to put, prove they'd been yeah, there yeah, yeah. in case anyone questioned the course. Uh, before starting the descent. Did he not have to draw any of this or was he way past that? Oh, no, this is this is money. He's right. he's the conqueror of the right, Matterhorn. True, he's, yeah. he's fine now. He's rolling in it. He doesn't have to do a single wood carving or topographical map mm. again if he, he doesn't be, want to. He'll be using his wood when he gets home. <laughs> I don't know if... I mean, I'm guessing adventurers and explorers were the celebrities of the day. So, yeah, I imagine he would get a lot of attention. Drowning. I don't know if the Royal Geographical Society had groupies, but if they did, Edward was now uh, propelled to the very top of that list. (laughs) 
of eligible young bachelors. Now, like I said, they, they stayed up on the top for an hour. So it's about um, 20 to 3 at this point. Um, before they thought, best start on the way down. Don't want to get caught up here in the dark. Mm. They were being as careful as they could, but they had a novice climber in the party and there was always an element of danger. Then, as, Ed, as Edward himself recalled, as far as I know, at the moment of the accident, no one was actually moving. I cannot speak with certainty, and neither can the Tagwalders, because the two leading men were partially hidden from our sight by an intervening mass of rock. Poor Croz had laid aside his axe, and in order to give Mr. Hadow greater security, was absolutely taking hold of his legs and putting his feet one by one into their proper positions. So this guy was so inexperienced that the head guide was physically moving his legs (laughs) down like some kind of mountaineering puppet master. Uh, From the movements of their shoulders, it is my belief that Croz, having done as I have said, was in the act of turning round to go down a step or two himself. At this moment, Mr. Hadow slipped, fell on him, and knocked him over. Are they got? Are they got? Are they roped at this point? Or well, Hadow careened down the slope and dragged Cross, Hudson, and Douglas with him. The two Tagwalders and Edward grabbed tight to the rocks to take the strain, but this proved too much for the old worn rope, which snapped. Oh dear! Ironically, Hudson. Who, who was now, you know, no longer attached to the people who were stationary, had bought new ropes, especially for the 1865 climbing season, which included metal cables sort of woven in with mm. the fabric. But because they were in a hurry, he'd not remembered to pack them. Because, you know, they, they got, they'd gone from, oh, there's three of us to, there's seven of us and we have to oh, go now. Yeah. Italians are there. Yeah. By the time he he was yeah. told of the plan, they had that evening to get everything planned, so he'd just totally forgotten those ropes. All Wimper and the Tagwalders could do was watch in horror as their companion slid over a precipice and fell screaming into the void. Oh, my God. Oh. The bodies of Cross, Haddow and Hudson were recovered on the 19th. So a couple of days later, while the body of 19-year-old Lord Douglas has to this day never been found. All they found was one glove. Just one glove? Just one glove. I'm I'm assuming it had his name sort of stitched in it, which is how they knew it was Lord Douglas's glove, but they just found one glove. See. Then, why would you think you can climb stuff and not die? Do you know what I mean? To this point, deaths in the Alps have been really, really rare. And there was a sense of entitlement amongst the... Because you've got to remember, the British Alpine Club had only been going to this point for like eight years. And they met with nothing but success, pretty much. That's that's because they were the first, so everything was... (laughs) No, but I mean, there have been no deaths, there have been no major accidents. So someone like... um, you know, Hadao, this new guy coming out. Why? Why did he need any experience before climbing the Matterhorn? He he was English. He was with other English climbers. They had Michael Cross, who was the he was like the guy. Mm. You know, everyone knew him as the guide who would get you up anything. So he's like, you know, he's got this guy moving his feet. Why would he be in any way concerned that he wasn't coming down off this mountain, especially when the climb up had been so easy? <laughs> Well, a lot of the time, the climb down is the worst part when it's an easy up. Yeah, but that's... You need to know that. Well, yeah. 
you know, you need to have experience to have figured that out. And he had none. Yeah, it was the equivalent of, you know, he was the cow that they'd led up the stairs and then they were panicking because they had no idea how to get this damn cow back down the stairs. And it wasn't the cow's fault because the cow didn't know (laughs) that the cow couldn't get down the stairs. Yeah. Oh, man. Jesus. So how far down were they found the bodies? Um, God, it was... And how far was... It it was at least a thousand metres below where they'd fallen. Oh, God, how terrifying would that be? There was enough time to, to scream, draw a breath. And then oh my God. scream again. That's that's the kind of height we're talking. Now, like I say, up until this point, deaths in the Alps had been rare for Brits. So the loss of four men, including the well-known and local uh, respected local guide, was a sensation. The controversy got so bad that Queen Victoria herself considered banning British subjects from climbing altogether. A national ban on climbing what? was considered by the monarch at this point that's how big a sensation it caused so it should be you, you just need to have a bit of have a license to show that you're not a cow <laughs> <laughs> yeah what some kind of yeah, yeah I've, just, I've done the requisite it's like a training parachute license now mm. you don't just let you jump out of a plane unless you're rich enough to buy a plane and <laughs> jump out of it yourself you but. realize that yeah the victorian era wasn't the era of health and safety it was go out and see <laughs> come back mm. it's a success <laughs> yeah you don't it was the kind where machinery didn't have um guards and signs it mm. was well either you know or you should have known <laughs> or you will know <laughs> yeah, you will know um and although the surviving members of the party were judged to be innocent of any wrongdoing accusations started to fly that they had cut the rope to save their own skins and these accusations Ooh. would dog them for the rest of their lives Oh. So not only have you watched four people these people plummet, plummet, you'll get blamed for it. Yeah, Ugh. and even when you're cleared of wrongdoing in a sort of legal sense, you know, um, Still getting... yeah, it, it's oh. dogging you for the rest of your life. So you can imagine it's harder to find people, especially if you're the tag walders, to find people who want you to guide them. It's like, <laughs> well, if anything goes wrong... <laughs> Peter and Peter will be off down the mountain like, goodbye! <laughs> Good <laughs> luck! <in> the <laughs> you can just hear that. We'll mourn you! <laughs> what are you doing, Peter? You knew it had end this way. Um, so, what happened to the principal players who survived after the unclimbable mountain had been climbed? They got ridiculed. Well, specifically. Oh. So, Peter Tagwalder Sr., he was cleared, like I said, of wrongdoing, but he decided to emigrate to America just to be on the safe side, where maybe th- there's less likely that he would be... Um... There's, no, there's no Google. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Alpine sort of climbing community was pretty tight, yeah. you know, amongst the sort of the, yeah, the, yeah. the elites of that. So he's like, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go over to America and see what, you know... Start afresh. Yeah, start afresh with the American mountains where they don't know the story quite so well, or at least wouldn't know my face and link it to my name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jean-Antoine Carrel continued to lead people up the Alps until the age of 62, when he died on the slopes of his Matterhorn of exhaustion, having successfully guided his charges through a snowstorm to safety. Oh. So, yeah, he... Pure adrenaline, and then... Got him through. Damn. And then he collapsed and died at the age of 62. 62, though, that's... Then. Still climbing. Maybe that... What was the average age then? 
No, no, no. The average age seems really low for the Victorian times, but that's just because, you know, child deaths were so high. It's like so many many babies under the age of one were dying that it dragged the entire life expectancy. Basically, if you got past childhood, you know, 60s and 70s would be uh, doable, even for particularly poor people, yeah. It was just the chances of getting through childhood were so much lower. Oh, Oh, bless them. children. Yeah, it was just... You know, it like we said, there was no health and safety. There was no um, checking on how parenting styles were. Oh, oh God. So, you know, and people were living in hovels. And whereas an adult has a an immune system that's fully oh. developed, a lot of these kids just didn't. How lucky uh, are we? Yeah. We're very lucky. Oh. <laughs> I mean, we all survived. There were four of us, and we all survived to adulthood. Yeah, but... <laughs> that's a 100%. Let's do what, it. So what was the... If there was four of us back then, what was the chances of all of one us? Of, statistically, at least one of us would have died. Really? And it wouldn't have been unusual for two of us to have died. Oh. Um, you know, that, that would have been considered a par for the course if you had four kids. For... So of, of his 11 children? Uh, I have no idea, actually. Many... You know, um, No, I have no idea how many of his 11 children. All I know is uh, Edward. Sorry, I'm did. focusing far too much on the on age, of, age of deaths. Sorry, carry on. It's the bit that took you. I, I present you with a mountain. You're like, but what about the children? <laughs> it's because you've got a pure heart. Um, Edward himself, Edward Wimper, will go on to explore Greenland and to make important discoveries regarding altitude sickness while climbing in South America. He also collected tons of amphibians, which he gifted to the British Museum because he, he got into amphibians, That's as you the do. Next turn. Yeah. I've done some mountaineering. Oh, some frogs. This yeah, frogs. this is where ah. the frogs were. Um, and as far Did as I find a certain frog. No, these these were just um, samples of all the different South American frogs. And as far as I'm aware, some of the samples are still on display in the British Natural History Museum to this day. So I don't know if they put who who gave them oh. as part of their little um, thingy bob. But if well, they do, I've been there. So yeah, maybe. you may find a whimper. <laughs> Later. After the frogs, he will go climbing in the Canadian Rockies. And he had a mountain named after him, which is pretty cool. Well, it's been yeah. Wimper Mountain. Him, it? Uh, and was then very disappointed to learn that it was the second Mount Wimper in North America, as his brother Frederick had also had a mountain named after him, and Frederick's had been named first. His, 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 his own brother? His own brother had, had, <laughs> had a mountain named after him before Edward had had a mountain named after him. It was, what? Yeah. What chances of that? Well, very, very yeah. low. But imagine how pissed off you would be <laughs> if you went back to the family reunion with your ten siblings and you're like, they named a mountain after me. And it, your Frederick just walks in and goes, yeah, they did that for me three yeah, years ago. <laughs> which one's is bigger? That's That'd be the dragon Again, race. I should look into that, shouldn't I? Well, that's, that's all that matters, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yeah. It's the, that well with climbing though it's the biggest isn't it the biggest is best I thought first for things as well isn't it well, it's yeah. not always the biggest yeah but it's because difficulty I think for, biggest. For, for anyone though you, you climb something higher than you just keep going higher and higher well no it's, I thought I thought um, in terms of the biggest that K2 was considered uh, a, a more illustrious climb than oh, Everest way more dangerous K2 yeah. But it's not the tallest. No, no. So it. But if you've only talking like yeah, but if you'd only climb one of them, it it would probably be more impressive to say you climb K two to a climb, you know, to a mountaineer. The the deaths per like attempts 
and K2 is ridiculously mm. high compared to Everest. Everest. But, I mean, I'm, ne- I'm never going to be doing stuff like that. Aww. See, <laughs> put yourself at risk. Well, this is climbing. I'm, I'm bouldering. It's, I know. It's a, it's, I assume it's a, you'll eventually, you know... You know, I, like Dad started out and he was doing mountain biking. He yeah, was like, but... "I'm just going to do a few trails," and then next thing he's doing um, Ordax hypermiling and he's riding to Edinburgh and back. Yeah, but Dad's a machine. Yeah, I just I'm assumed a... you go the same way with climbing. No, no, not... that's oh no. Oh. Well, we're not finished with Edward though, because oh. after he had a mountain named after him, and at the age of 65, Edward married a 23-year-old and had a daughter called Edith. It's 65. Yeah, he fathered a daughter wow. called Edith. Shockingly, though, the marriage didn't last. Hmm. And Edward Wimper died alone in a hotel in the Alps on September 16th, 1911, at the age of 71. He'd been climbing that morning and had become ill, but had refused medical treatment. So he decided, well, seems it was, it was his time. That's a, that's a good way to go. Doing what you love in the morning. Edward is buried in a graveyard in the Alps in view of Mont Blanc, the tallest of the Alpine peaks, and you assume it's kind of where he'd want to be. His ascent of the Matterhorn and the disaster that followed is considered the end of the golden age of alpinism. Since that first disaster, over 500 people have met their end on the Matterhorn, which equates to over three people every year for 155 years. Damn. If you want to read more from Edward himself, including his full account of the ascent of the Matterhorn, you can read Scrambles in the Alps, which I think is quite a nice title, uh, for free at archive.org. Okay. And that is your story of Edward Wimper and the first ascent of the Matterhorn. It's crazy. Why would you? Just at that time. I just don't get why you'd ever look at something and think, yeah, this fraying rope looks good enough. Let's go for it. Because it, it was, we have to beat the Italians. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know whose rope it was as well. It may be that, you know, they all just like, have you got rope in the pack, Tugwalder? Tugwalder. <laughs> yes, yes, I have ropes. <laughs> okay, let's go. Yeah. He's there at the bottom unpacking. Yeah. Just, just going, oh <laughs> no, I picked up the wrong bag. Oh no, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. Just don't worry about just it. He sees so. a fraying rope and some bushes. That's. <laughs> Raveling it around. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, yeah. What? They didn't bring any ropes. Just look over there. Some people, they've left their ropes. Would you just grab them? Just grab them. They're in a bin. <laughs> <laughs> They're in a bin, Dad. Shut up. Shut up. Don't what? blow this for me. <laughs> we, need, we need this money. So <laughs> otherwise, I'm selling you. <laughs> God damn. Just take the ropes. Oh. What's the chances we're actually going to need them? Oh. Yeah. That's crazy. I don't think... There's no way in hell I'd be climbing shit like that. Well, That's not my type of climbing. Again, it's it's not just that they were climbing it. It's that the, equi- and the, the equipment from bottom to top, you know, these people were wearing just hobnail boots and thick mean. wool. That, that's what I mean. That's why it's... <laughs> there was no oxygen. Breed, it's just a different breed if mm. you look at it. His, his book, Scrambles in the Alps, as well, it gives you a lot of um, description of what to look for in a good walking stick to help you climb a mountain. Because that is the most important No, no, he was like... yes, time, probably. He was like, you know, a man is a biped, essentially, a bipedal creature, but with the, uh, you know, the, the proper application of a good stout climbing stick, you become a tripod. 
It's true, though. Yeah, but the way he described it is like, no, this is the revelation. Never will a piece of mountaineering equipment be designed that is better than a stick. (laughs) But it's got to be the right stick, but still, essentially, a stick. You think of ice axes and everything now. (laughs) It's like you're literally just pulling yourself up. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah, it was a simpler time in many ways. But well done. It's simpler, but it's not <laughs> at all, is it? Well, I mean, there's less choice of equipment. It's simpler for think- choosing things to do, but anything you do, choose to do, is more than likely going to be really hard. <laughs> well, it's it's hard in that physically it's hard and there's a lot of risk, but also you're free to choose to do these things. Yeah, you know, he, he put together the, the successful expedition from I'm in the Alps near the Matterhorn to we're climbing with a full team two. in two days. Could you imagine trying to pull that off today? Oh, God, no. There's no chance. God, it takes it, it took us longer than that to arrange for me to come here and do this podcast yeah, with you true. guys. So, that's yeah. very true. But we're all busy, guys. <laughs> busy climbing big mountains. Hmm. No? One day. One, one you... day. Oh, no. That's What's great. That? that is the picture that's going to go up online in a few minutes. Well, that... Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's fitting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, welcome to the team. It's been fun. I think... Uh... I don't know how we stopped that without breaking it. Jack! Jack! Okay. We don't want to break it. <laughs>